Well, hey, good morning. As you're making your way back to your seat, remain standing. Pick up your Bibles, open up to Matthew 25. We're going to remain standing for the reading of God's Word. So if you would, if you're able, please stand. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25. Uh, it's page uh, 987 if you need one of those blue hardback Bibles in the room. I'd love for everybody to have a print copy of God's Word out in front of them. My words will pass away, but the Word of the Lord will never pass away. If you're just joining us this morning, we're going through uh, the parables of Jesus this summer. Uh, so we'll be in the parables of Jesus for the rest of this month. Uh, if you want to know what we're doing this fall, around the time school kicks back in, we will be going uh, through the book of Ephesians, passage by passage. That'll get us through the end of the year. But right now we're in the parables, and we are into the parable of the talents. This is Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30, page 987. I'd love for everybody to have uh, God's word out in front of them. Uh, friends, with that in mind, hear the word of the Lord to us. For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug it in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I'll set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you didn't sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I haven't scattered seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents." For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he, who has, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Friends, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Would you be seated and keep that Bible open in front of you as we pray? Uh, most merciful Father, Father of lights, we love you, and we pray that by your Holy Spirit, we would hear the words and the teachings of your precious Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Lord, I thank you that I am speaking in front of a group of your people that have each been given enormous talents. And Lord, I pray that we would dig them out of the ground if we have buried them. And Lord, I pray that we would invest in our relationship with you and in the lives of the people around us for the glory of your name and for the kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
Uh, what time is it? Anybody know? Anybody know what time it is? It's a funny question. Um, some of you, whom I love, answered audibly, which was awesome. I love when people answer questions audibly. But if you think about the question, what time is it? Some of you could just look down and say, what? What time is it? 9.32. What's another way you can answer the question? What time is it? Well, it's July, right? It's summertime. It's the dog days of summer. It's also officially, if you look outside, it's officially what? Fire season and smoke is here, right? Uh, another way you could tell what time it is, it's 2022, which means it's a what? Oh, come on. You watch the news. 2022? It's an election year, right? That's another way of telling what time it is. Um, I came across a pastor in Nashville, Tennessee, and he said something so profound at the beginning of this year as I was working on my calendar. And what he said to me was he was, he was writing this kind of extended, uh, you know, I don't know, thought, pastor thought. You know how pastors are. Just blah, 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 right? <laughs> and he was saying something about time, but he said, if you let it, the world will tell you what time it is. And there's something so profound in that statement. If you let it, the prevailing culture around you will use the time that you have and try to shape it around its culture and values. But really, we need to be asking the question, what time is it? Yes, it's 9.34 now on you know, July something, 31st, 2022. But is that really how you and I are meant to tell time? Uh, if you look at the front of your bulletin, um, you, know, you may notice that we write ordinary time on there. Uh, you know, some people think, well, the days aren't very ordinary, so what is that about? Uh, but really, ordinary just means numbered. And these are the numbered days. And it's a reminder that our days are numbered. But really, what this is, is it's a reminder that you and I, uh, you know, we, we're at a church where we acknowledge the church calendar. Now, every Christian that I am aware of usually acknowledges some level of the church calendar. Uh, if you celebrate Christmas and Easter, uh, you celebrate on some level the church calendar. Uh, you know, this is not commanded in Scripture, but Christians early, early on felt the need to tell time differently, to not let the world tell them, you know, what holidays are important or what months to recognize, but instead to shape their whole life in the way that they see time around the story of Jesus. And so every Advent later this year, uh, the colors will turn purple, and it's a reminder that Jesus came into our world. And actually, from the time of Advent on through Christmas, onto Epiphany, it, it leads all the way up until the springtime when we celebrate the Passover, or as we know it, you know, Easter, Resurrection Sunday, when Jesus, our ultimate Passover lamb, died. And then 50 days later, we celebrate what? Anybody remember? Pentecost, the birth of the New Testament church. And then after Pentecost, every summer from Pentecost until Advent, we exist as a church in something called ordinary time. And it means we are living in a time where we are to be about the ordinary work of Christians. We are to do the ordinary work of everyday disciples of Jesus. And it's also a reminder that we live between two Advents. There was the first coming of Jesus when he entered our world, born of a virgin. And we know from his word that one day Jesus will return again. And there are some Christians who don't ever want to think about that, that Jesus is returning. And they're like, I don't want to think about that. I don't want to read Revelation. I don't want to hear stories about the end of the world. I just sort of want to live you know, my life here and now. But uh, if you look down, Matthew 23, 24, 25, uh, these are some of Jesus' most pointed sayings. And really, especially chapters 24 
and 25, you can see this as Jesus' parables of the end of the world. And, you know, there is an overemphasis at the end of Jesus' life about the end of all things or the consummation, the coming of the kingdom. And so if you and I are going to understand the parable of the talents, you have to recognize that this is not just about how to make wise financial investments, right? That's not the only point of this parable, how to use your money. This is actually a parable about Jesus' return, And there are some Christians who don't want to think about that. I think there are some Christians who like get crazy and think about that all the time. Uh, But it's unavoidable if you follow Jesus, that Jesus is returning and that should shape how you live your life. In fact, that's sort of the whole point of all of these parables, that you and I should be living with the understanding that one day Christ will return. But, you know, what I'm noticing in people is, um, and maybe you don't, maybe you don't see this, but I feel like I see this all the time, uh, is that I feel like we're living in a time of compassion fatigue. Have you ever heard of that phrase, compassion fatigue? Um, I read a book this past week. Uh, It was a a techno thriller. It was awesome. It was like the sci-fi book. It was so dorky. And, uh, you know, it posited that people only have the capacity to really care about 150 people. And after that, we just don't care. Um, You know, and it's like, you know, the, the the thesis was basically like one school shooting is tragic, 20, you get numb. You know, one person dies of COVID, it's a tragedy when hundreds of thousands, you stop caring. And so what do we do with that? You know, I think many of us, if we were honest with ourselves, we're at a point where there's just not a lot of gas left in the tank, literally and metaphorically, (laughs) literally and also gasoline as compassion in this analogy. We have compassion fatigue, Uh, we're tired, we're anxious. And then as Christians, we know Christ is returning and we know that things are bad. And the irony is that that cripples many of us. And the people that seem to be focused the most on Christ's return often seem to be the most fearful and the most crippled by that. And what we need, and what I would suggest to you, is yes, Christ is returning, but that shouldn't cripple you into inaction or compassion fatigue. Actually, this is exactly Jesus's point in Matthew 24 and 25. Jesus is returning, and that should spark you into a new way of life, into action towards other people. So if you look down at Matthew 24 and 25, you know, if you were to zoom out, um, anyone here have a red letter Bible? Uh, You know, I've got a red letter Bible here. It's like the whole whole two pages are all red, right? So you can see that Jesus Jesus is just um, talking uh, over and over again about his return. And really what he's getting to, I think, in all of this is how do we respond Uh, to his return. How are we supposed to live? Uh, You know, what are we supposed to do? Okay, Jesus is returning, so what do I do? How am I supposed to live? And the thing I want you to recognize is, um, you know, (laughs) I'm not going to pontificate about like what day or year. Um, I did read somebody uh, earlier this week. I was doing sermon prep. I always try to read people I agree with, and then I try to read people I disagree with. And this one guy was like, remember in the 80s and the Jesus movement, and everyone thought Jesus was going to return, and he kind of had a laugh at them. And he said, they were way wrong. You know, they thought Jesus was coming back in the 80s. He said, I know that he's coming back by 2040-something. <laughs> yeah, not where I thought that was going. Um, you know, I don't, I'm not going to pontificate about when I think Jesus is going to return. You know, I can tell you this. We are one day closer than we were yesterday, and that he is returning, and that should shape how you and I live our lives. Um, I think Jesus even says right there in verse 24, 36, he says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven. So that doesn't mean we shouldn't be reading the times, but there is a sense that we shouldn't try to overestimate how quickly we understand. 
In fact, if you were to zoom out and look at chapters 24 and 25, if anything, when Jesus starts talking about his return, the message is actually surprising. Uh, if you look at, uh, look at chapter 24 with me, look down, look at verse 45. Uh, Jesus tells a very short parable about a master who goes away and he leaves his servant in charge. But then the servant decides to abuse his fellow servants. And he starts to eat, you know, eat drink, and you know, corrals, and he's not focused on what his master wants to do. But then it says the master returns, this is verse 50, the master returns on a day when he does not expect. Right? So, we, so Jesus is saying he's going to return on some level at a time when his people are not expecting it. So we know Jesus' return on some level will be unexpected. And then if you look at uh, chapter 25, verses 1 through 13, this is the parable of the ten virgins. The whole point of this parable, I'm not going to you know, go into this too much, the whole point of this parable is the return of Jesus is going to be delayed, that it's going to take longer than his audience will think it will. So I'm not saying it's not going to happen in our lifetime, but what I am saying is there's a valid reason to believe that it could also not be in your lifetime. And you may need to grapple with what if the bridegroom is delayed? What are you supposed to do then? Then, of course, the parable of the talents, which is what we're going to focus on today, answers that very question. What do we do when somehow Jesus' return is unexpected, but on some level we should be expecting it and believing in it, and yet there's also a sense, according to the parable of the ten virgins, that it could also be delayed? What do we do then? How do we live in this tension? And, you know, the reason I love the church calendar, you don't have to like the church calendar at all. The reason I like it is it reminds me that you and I live between the two advents. When everything's purple, I remember Jesus came into this world and he is coming again. And I am reminded over the summer, now is the time to be of work of the harvest. Uh, there is a harvest to be made. I have been given talents and so have you. And our goal is to invest in the kingdom of God because one day he will return. Now that's, that's my premise. That's the time that you are living in. Uh, you're not just living in fire season. You're not just living in July 31st of 2022, you are living between the time when Jesus came first and when he is coming again. And that should shape how you live today. And that's actually what this parable that we're going to look at, the parable of talents, is going to be all about how do we live if the master is delayed? How do we live when the groom surprises us in his delay? Well, look at the parable of the talents. How do we live? Look at verse 14. It says, For it, that is the coming of Jesus, his second coming, when the kingdom of God is here fully, Jesus says, For it'll be like a guy going on a journey who called his servants together and entrusted to them his property. Uh, that word servant there could also be translated slave. It's doulos in Greek. It could be servant or bond servant or slave. Uh, but the whole point is these people are supposed to be doing what this man has employed them to do. And he entrusted them his property. And so to one man he gave five talents, to another he gave two, and to another uh, his uh, one single talent, each according to their ability. And then he went away. And right there, you know, we have to ask the question, what is a talent? Uh, so this is a fun play on the words. This is one of the reasons why you should study the Bible, even if you're not a Christian, because it has shaped a lot of culture and life. The word talent there does not mean your talent with the recorder or your talent with the flute. Right? You know how like, when your parents, when your younger parents are like, you're so talented, right? That's not necessarily what that word talent means. Talent here is a reference to a large sum of money. 
Uh, it would be uh, the amount of gold that you know, someone could carry on their back, supposedly. So 75 pounds of riches, right? It's an enormous sum of money. Uh, you know, it's been posited anywhere from about $300,000 to about a million dollars would be what a talent is worth. So what he's saying is this very rich master gives to all of his servants varying levels of resources. And he says, go out and invest them, right? That's the expectation is they go out and they invest and they make more money. And, you know, the, the cool thing about it is as English developed, they took that word talent and they reapplied it to mean talents like what you and I think of, like our talents, right? It's pretty sweet how the Bible uh, has given us that word talent. But in this context, it means specifically a, a large sum of money, right? So he gives these men these different amounts, and then the master goes away. And then look at verse 16. The first servant who received the most, the five talents, went when? At once. The word right there is immediately. He immediately took what the, the, the master had given him, and he traded it, and he made five talents more. Same thing with the second guy. He was only given two talents, but again, he had 100% return, and he made two talents more. But then here's the rub of the parable. Verse 18, there's one guy who's only given one talent, and instead of investing it, he does what? He buries it in the ground. Okay, now look at verse 19. What does Jesus say in the parable? Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came back. What do you think Jesus is communicating about his return? Well, to the original apostles, it was going to be for a long time. It may be in your lifetime, but I would say a valid application is that it still may be a long time. In fact, that the, the timing should not matter. What should matter is that you are ready at any moment. That's what matters. That's the point of this parable. We don't know. It's unexpected. It could be in my lifetime or it could not. But that doesn't change how I'm supposed to live my day-to-day -day life. After a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And of course, you know, you understand the rest of the story, right? The first guy who had did the five, he comes back to the master and he says, look, I've made you five more. And his master says the words every Christian wants to hear at, their end of the, at the end of their life. Well done, good and faithful servant. And then what's the reward? What's the reward for a good investment? Good job working. I will give you even more to work with. The, the blessing of good work is more work, right? Isn't that awesome? Same thing with the guy who had two talents. Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting that Jesus says that the master praises both men with the exact same words. And it's a reminder that it doesn't matter if you think you have a lot of talent or you only have a little bit of talent. The praise is the same. The effusive grace of the master is the same whether the guy had five or two. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. I mean, what grace? What over-the-top praise for these slaves? What over-the-top grace? But then, of course, the third guy, he shows up, and uh, you know we'll get to him in just a second. But what are we supposed to see from these two good servants? What are we supposed to understand? Well, what I want to suggest to you is that this is a parable, right? This is a, um, a lifestyle, like a, 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 not necessarily a real life, but a, a story based on real life that's supposed to be compared to something. We're supposed to make an analogy to it. We're supposed to understand what the point of the story is. And I think, you know, if you were to step back and say, what's the point of this story? It's simply that God has given each one of us an enormous amount of money, money, an enormous amount of talents, an enormous amount of resources and relationships. And it's each a portion to each one of us. 
And so you could understand the talents to be your financial resources, but you could also just as validly understand the talents to also be the unique relationships that you have, your family, your neighborhood, your friends, your coworkers. That is part of the talents, the resources that God has given you. I love what our elder Dave Fennell talks about all the time. He always says, God has called us to what? Our sphere of influence. But there's also a sense, friend, that I want you to recognize that the talent doesn't just have to be literally your personal talents or your resources or your sphere of influence. There's also a valid understanding that the talent, the riches that the master has given to his servants is not just money and it's not just their relationships. What is the greatest deposit that God has ever given his people? What's the greatest thing that God has given you, Christian? Is actually the gospel of grace. It's the gospel of God's kindness and mercy. That is the greatest riches that you and I have. And you and I are supposed to spread the message of God's grace in Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth, starting in our sphere of influence and moving outward. So one way to understand this parable, Christian, is that God has invested in you the immeasurable riches of Christ, and it is your job, it is your great calling in life to spread the aroma of Christ into the world. The question then is, are you actually investing it? You know, overwhelmingly, the vast majority of Christians, if you trust groups like the Barna Group, the overwhelming number of Christians will never invite someone to church, and they will never share the gospel with somebody. Never. More, more than half of all Christians will never share the gospel with somebody. Friends, if that's the case, what is happening to the riches of the gospel? You think it's being buried in the ground? Now, I'm not saying that you've got to go out and I'll be, you know, Billy Graham's, but I think this is the power of a parable. It may be God's call on your life to start sharing the message of Jesus to others. You know, um, you know, I love Martin Luther, but Martin Luther was German, so he's kind of weird, okay? I'll be fully honest. Martin Luther was kind of weird, y'all. You know, he wasn't Jesus, but he's great, but he's not Jesus. And supposedly, you know, somebody came up to Martin Luther years ago, and they said, you know, Martin, what would you do if Jesus were to come back today? And you know what Martin Luther famously said? He said, I would still be gardening, because he's gardening. You know, he's like, that was his answer. What would you do if Jesus came back today? He's like, I would still be gardening. And that's supposed to be some profound insight, you know? Ah, Jesus' return. I just keep working on my garden. Really? Really? I mean, if you really thought that you only had six months to live, really, Christian, you don't think anything in your life would change? Really? I mean, if you really took this parable to heart, nothing's going to change. You think this parable is just about giving 1% more of your income? That's what this parable is about? You, know? you think this parable is just about giving an extra $5 to the homeless guy that you don't want to make eye contact with? Friends, the return of Christ should be motivating you in a different way. And here, here's, here's the strange thing about this story, and I, I hope this makes sense to you. What the master says is he says, for those who take what I have given them, and they actually use it 
for the right purpose. They do what I want them to do. They live the life, right? They spread the gospel. They use their talents, however you want to interpret this parable. What God says, you know, if you're understanding the story, what God says is, I will give you even more to work with. And that seems so counterintuitive because who wants more work as the reward for working hard? <laughs> but friends, you're, you're missing the point of the parable. If you are a Christian and the Holy Spirit resides in you, you have a holy hunger and a thirsting for righteousness so that when you start taking that into your diet, you just want more of it. Um, I'll give you an example. So a few months ago, um, uh, Kevin Fought, our, our elder of mission, encouraged us to all go to the Medford Gospel Mission and feed uh, people. And so I started bringing some of my kids with me. And it was, they took a liking to it, and it was awesome. And they started to develop a holy hunger to do more. And here's, here's what naturally arose in them. So the first month, you know what happened? We had strawberry milk. So there's, a, there's like a gallon of strawberry milk, right? And the strawberry milk uh, was for whom? It was only for the kids at the gospel mission. So my kids were like strawberry milk deliverers. Pretty sweet, right? So they ran and they would give all the kids strawberry. But then guess what happened to the strawberry milk? It ran out. So there's no more strawberry milk. So I was talking to my kids and we're processing it. And then just out of their brain, a brilliant idea came. And what was the brilliant idea? We could go buy strawberry milk and bring it with us next time. And then you know what they decided next? They said, oh, and you know what we should do? We should go by the dollar store and we should do what? Buy crayons and make little things for the kids to play with while their parents are eating. You see, friends, this is like the great thing about the Christian life. The Christian life doesn't just grow like this. It grows like a hockey stick. It's exponential, right? And that's also true when you reject Christ. Your downward trajectory takes you to the outer darkness and hell, and it is exponential when you turn away from Christ. That's what Jesus is doing when he's grabbing you by the ears in this parable, and he brings up hell. This is serious. This should wake you up. You should probably rethink gardening, Martin. <laughs> That's what I would tell him. Because here, here's the idea. Friends, what you consume, what you do, is often what you want more of. What you consume is often what you want more of, right? This is why you binge TV that you should never watch on Netflix. This is why you watch wretched shows. You know why? It's because you watch one episode and you start to develop a hunger for even more. So you gotta be careful with what you consume because what you consume is often what you want more of. But the beautiful thing, the beautiful turn of the kingdom is if you start caring about the kids of the gospel mission, all of a sudden you start to care about them even more. Uh, friends, this is what I would suggest to you is at the heart of why humanity understands that wisdom resides in the elders, not in the young people. You know who are the most compassionate people, the, most, uh, the people that are usually most on top of meeting people's needs? You know who it is? It's usually older women, usually older moms. They anticipate your needs before you even have them. Why is that? Because they have developed over a lifetime of sacrificial giving a holy hunger to be gracious and kind to people. And they like it. They enjoy it. It's God glorifying and life-giving to them. It's because they develop that holy hunger. So if you're a Christian this morning uh, and you have financial resources or gifts 
or you have the gospel buried deep in you, God is calling you to go use those gifts to go out in courage and to do what God has called you to do. And the beautiful thing, friend, is if you do it and the Holy Spirit is inside of you, what will happen is you will want more opportunities. You'll be like the old grandmother who's going above and beyond the call of duty because she wants to. You'll be like a little child who just wants to bring extra strawberry milk. What you consume is often what you want more of. So um, here's the other thing I want to point out about this parable. Maybe you don't think this is important, but I actually think this is really important. Um, When it says that the the guy who has the five talents, when he makes five talents more, is that some like insane investment amount? I mean, is that an impossible amount? Actually, it's not. Most New Testament scholars all individually point out that a 100% return on this kind of investment is kind of actually what they should do. It's not an ins- maybe it would be insane, you know, according to you and me, but in this ancient world, a 100% investment on that much money was actually exactly how much they should expect to get. So the expectation, Christian, is not that you have this like world-changing ministry or you have this like, you know, Rogue Valley changing lifestyle. What's actually simply being depicted is the guys are just doing what they're called to do. They're just, they're influencing their sphere of influence and they're doing what they can. It's not this impossible standard that these guys are just like blowing it away. These guys don't have Midas' touch. They're just doing faithful, ordinary, everyday discipleship. That's my suggestion to you. It's an ordinary amount of return. They're just doing what God has called them to do. Which makes what the uh, third servant what he has done all the more shocking. All right, and what, what's the deal with the third servant? I mean, I wish I could stop here, right? I mean, I wish I could just give a hoorah sermon. Jesus is returning. You know, don't let your compassion fatigue fail. Recommit your work to the Lord. Invest where you're called to invest in. I wish I could end there, but that's not where Jesus ends this parable. And it's important to remember that Jesus says everything out of this, out of love and a desire to call people into the eternal life of the kingdom. And Jesus now turns his attention in this story to the third servant. And what is it that he does? Well, look with me. Um, it says, the, verse 24, He who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you didn't sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. So the servant accuses the master of being a hard man, of being lazy. He says, well, you get all this stuff. You don't ever work a day in your life. You know, you, you're a hard man. You reap where you didn't sow. And so I just hid your talent in the ground here. You can have it back. Um, I can't help but think of Adam. Remember our father Adam, you know, when he eats the apple, what's his answer when God calls him to his reckoning? He says, the woman you gave me did this to me. So it's actually her fault plus your fault, 0% my fault. So Very similar, right? What does he say? Well, you're a hard man. You know, you get the wrong kind of character, you know, paralyzed and just buried it down in the ground. Ah, forget about it. You know, uh, part of the harder things of, you know, believing in the return of Christ is there will be a reckoning for every person. You know, people live recklessly. Have you ever heard that phrase? You know, recklessly. You know what that means? It means you are living like there will not be a reckoning. 
But there will be a reckoning. Each one of us, myself included, will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And if that doesn't sober you, friend, how hard is your heart? There will be a reckoning. And what this man does is he starts accusing the master. He blames the master. And, you know, he's, he starts going through his list of excuses. I mean, can you imagine? What, what's your excuse? What's my excuse? I mean, how long is our list of excuses for why we don't invest in the kingdom, invest in the lives of others, use the talents that God has given us? Um, you know, uh, earlier in the service, we, um, uh, Scott uh, read a, a confession of sin, and it talks about we have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done. And I love that phrase because it reminds us that sin is not just the things that we do. Sometimes sin is our inability to do what we're supposed to do. Um, you, know, I, you know, when I was a youth pastor, this was always my hardest uh, thing to communicate to teenagers. And uh, hopefully our teenagers are smarter than my old youth group kids were. No, I'm just kidding. You are. You are already. But what I would often try to communicate to the teenagers was that when God calls you to a life of love and investing in other people, apathy is not love. You know, because what teenagers say, well, I'm not a jerk to him. I mean, like, I, they, pick, they pick on that guy. I just, I just leave him alone. I, I, I act like he doesn't exist. And I'm like, that's not love. <laughs> Ignoring people isn't loving them. That's just apathy. Love moves towards people. Your apathy is unexcusable. Uh, you know, I love what C.S. Lewis says. He says, friend, you have never met a mere mortal. You've never met just, just a, a, a clump of, of, of cells, a cluster of cells. You've never just met biological material. You meet people with immortal souls, and eternity is on the line. That should change how you think about things. This guy has committed a sin of omission. He didn't do what God called him to do, and he has his excuses listed. But does the judge care about those excuses? Do they get past the master? Of course not. So what am I trying to say? Let me just finish up. Um, on some level, this parable should be like <laughs> right in your way. You should have a hard time getting around this parable. That's the whole point of Matthew 24 through 25. There will be a reckoning. Christ will return. And that should shape on a profound level how you live life. But what are the things that you and I are called to do? You're not called to necessarily change the world, have this huge world-defining thing. What you're supposed to do is use the talents that God has given you in the spheres of influences that you have. And secondly, if you were to look in the final judgment of the second half of Matthew 25, Jesus even starts listing out the kinds of things that Christians should be doing in between the first and the second coming. And what is it that the Lord says? He says that when the king returns, he will say to those on his right, come into the kingdom inherited for you, prepared from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Friends, those are the things uh, that Christians are committed to doing. Um, I'm trying to find a new way to say this, but friend, you really, you and I, all we really have in life is your relationship with God and the lives of people that you invest in. That's it. That's really all you have. That's what you and I invest our talents in is the people around us. I mean, I'm trying to find different ways to say that, but maybe I'm not supposed to. So let me just finish it. What time is it?
Um, I'm past my time. That's what time it is. I'm past my time. I've gone over my time. Uh, But friends, it's the time between the two advents. Uh, The first advent, the first coming, Jesus came into the world to take the punishment of our sins, to open up to us the kingdom of God, and to call us to do the good works that he prepared for us in advance. It's ordinary time uh, to the extent that we are living before Jesus' second coming. You and I are called to do the work of everyday disciples. The days are evil. Yeah, that's what Jesus said. Get to work. Just because the days are evil is not an excuse for apathy or ignoring people. It's actually all the more reason to invest the talents that you and I have. Friends, that's an invitation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you came into the world to save us from ourselves. Lord, I thank you that you are coming again and that you will make all things right, that you will come in glory on the clouds and all people will see it. But Father, I lift to you now the people that are hearing me, the people that may be watching online. Lord, I lift to you the people that will come to Alpha this fall. And Lord, I pray that they would be ready for that day, that they would give their lives to you if they haven't. And Lord Jesus, I pray for the Christians in the room, Lord, that you would spark in us a desire to invest in your kingdom, to invest in the lives of people. And so, Lord, to that end, I do pray that uh, people would decide to uh, serve in Stephen ministry. Lord, I pray for four more Camp Levi STMs. Lord, we pray for men and women to come to faith in your son during Alpha. Lord, I pray that we would see baptisms again by this year. Uh, Lord, we think about our community. We lift to you our Rogue Valley. Lord, we have uh, such a... uh, weighty thing hanging on us in this fire. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would clear the smoke, that there would be rain on Monday and Tuesday that would clear this away. Uh, Lord, we especially lift to you the people that are most affected by this fire, Um, your children that are in Wairika and all of Northern California. Lord, would you have mercy on them and protect their lives and hold back this fire. Uh, Lord, we also think of other churches in our community. We pray that your spirit uh, would light them on fire and that they would love one another and invest in your kingdom. Uh, Lord, to that end, we pray for Hope Presbyterian Church in Rogue River, uh, our dear sister church, and uh, Pastor Brian Boyson. Lord, we pray that you would uh, fill his sails with your spirit and carry him exactly where you have called him. And Lord, would they make a difference in Rogue River. Lord, we also pray for all of the nurses, the doctors, and the healthcare workers in our community. Uh, Lord, we know that they're uh, facing compassion fatigue and they're just exhausted. Uh, Lord, we pray that by your Holy Spirit that you would encourage them and strengthen them. Father, we pray for those who are uh, sick in our community and in need of healing. Lord, we think of Phoebe Allstad and Paul Deller, Lynn Toombs and Randy Templeton, Lorraine Hoffman and Nancy Armstrong. Lord, I pray that even now you would be strengthening them both spiritually and physically and giving them hope and endurance. And Lord, we praise you that little Noah James was out of the hospital. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen his body as well. And Lord, we praise you that he's out. Lord Jesus, we pray that each person around us right now, Lord, would hear your words, well done, good and faithful servant. Father, what grace. Amen.